Hello, and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. This is an episode I've wanted to record for a long time. It's no secret that the publishing industry is predominantly white and middle class and still struggles to represent diverse voices. It's making changes, which has speeded up since the Black Lives Matter campaign, but I still don't see the rich variety of experiences of race, gender and class that emerge every year from my writing groups reflected on the shelves of bookshops and libraries. As Atia Khan says in our conversation, she didn't want to write another terrorist Muslim woman. The reading public are missing out on so many stories. I want to know what it takes to speed things up. Atia was on the podcast last season as one of the masterminds. Her debut YA novel, Ten Steps to Us, is being published this year by a new imprint called Hashtag Black. That imprint was co-founded by Abiola Bello, who is walking the walk of diversity in publishing. Abiola is an award-winning YA author herself, and as a publisher, she won the Trailblazer Awards in 2018 and is on the advisory group for World Book Day. I'm so grateful to her for agreeing to be a guest this week and for her forthright views on what's good, what's bad, and what needs to change and how to make it happen. My brother Christopher, who edits the podcast, says it's his favourite episode yet. We recorded it in January 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Abiola and Atia, and thank you both so much for joining me today. Hello. Hello. Um, I should say that we are uh, recording this at the height of lockdown. Um, we're obviously in three different places. We're also recording in three different ways. Um, so uh, one of us is on Audacity, one's on a recorder, one's on phone voice recorder. So if this works, it will be a technical miracle, but we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're going with it. Um, I've wanted to to talk to you um, both about something that I've been hoping for for a a long time, which is the publication of Atia's debut novel. Um, Yes! Um, but first, I'd just like to talk a little bit about about this year and well, the last year, really. Um, I'm curious to know how how it's affected you both in, you know, as um, in work and, and outside work. Abiola, if you want to go first. Yeah, I mean, when COVID happened, we obviously had our list of books that were coming out in 2020. And when, you know, it started getting a bit more serious and the lockdown happened. And I remember we were releasing a debut book um, called Baller Boys by Vanessa Taylor. I remember we were just going back and forth being like, should we release it? Should we push it back? And we were seeing loads of books being pushed back. And we were worried, like, well, we push it back to a date. And that's when everyone's going to release their books. And we were just so confused what to do. And in the end, we were like, you know what, let's just release it. Like we pushed yeah, other books yeah. back. We were like, let's just release this one. We've already done stuff, but let's just go for it. And I'm, I thank God we did because that book went to number one, and it did oh. so good. And we were just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that like we just couldn't believe how well it did. And people got so yeah. behind the book, and um, yeah, it was perfect. So thank God we did that. But it definitely has messed us up. Like um, our book is coming out tomorrow called Silver Linings by Jess Impiazzi. That was meant to be our Christmas book. It was meant to have come out um, end of November. Um, And just because of like COVID stuff, the printers were so packed up because everyone's books were coming out later. And it just just went crazy. We had to push back Hijab and Red Lipstick by I think a few weeks as well because of just the backlog and stuff. So it definitely has messed us up a bit. And we're really tiny. So you know financially as well it's been interesting I mean the fact we're still here is Jesus because I don't know how else we're still here I've seen lots of publishing houses closing down so we're very lucky really so, yeah, people have been closing down I didn't been know that that quite is a scary. Few closing down um small ones like ours you know Bertrand's closed down which is one of the big wholesalers so yes yeah you know it's been it's been really difficult and stuff but you know we've managed to get through it I don't know how but we have and yeah, we're just praying that, even though this year again is starting off like lockdown, but we're just hoping that it eases up. And now now we've kind of done lockdown, I feel like we kind of know what to do. But it still does like, you still worry about the books because obviously there's nothing better than being an author in person or doing like a school yeah. visit and stuff. So, <clears throat> you know, putting all that online and trying to connect with people is very 
difficult I had a book out last year my third book came out and I genuinely thought oh my god by September we're gonna be so out of this and you know he wasn't and I was like oh my god I can't believe my book is coming out in this climate and stuff but you just gotta get creative and just make it work so yeah yeah absolutely um I think it's the people who um who found ways around the problems just kind of kept at it who've who somehow managed to keep going but it, it's, yeah. it is just so tough um and, and Atia how about you well yeah it's been really challenging because I mean I work in me and my husband work in the NHS so <laughs> and we've got three mm. teenage kids and just the thing with like homeschooling because even though theoretically our kids are meant to be allowed to go to school because they're teenagers um, the older two weren't allowed to go and it's just been really difficult juggling everything um, the job the and the pandemic's not really over <laughs> it's, it's, actually, I know, right? it's actually a lot worse now yeah. than it was in March so that's what's yeah. actually a bit scary um, so I kind of was really glad that I'd written the book before the pandemic because I, I, I don't everybody else seemed like to have lots of time but I had no time because of the kids and housework and work and so actually um editing the book was kind of a nice distraction from it's kind of an escape from all the like stuff that was going on um I'm, I'm curious to know how how did you two meet um I mean I know that that obviously you're publishing um Atia through hashtag black but yeah, yeah. how did it all start um so- well we well, me and Helen, we were looking for um, two black British authors. That's how we were starting off Hashtag Black. And we got mm-hmm. Arts Council funding for it. And then, um, obviously, Atia will explain like, how she found us. But we got a submission from her. Um, we'd already signed... We'd already signed... I think we'd already signed Nuzo. And um, then I remember reading Atia's book. And I was like, oh, I really like this a lot. And I was like, oh, damn it, she's not black. What do we do? <laughs> We're just stressing out about that. And then I had a meeting with Helen and uh, Louisa, who helps to run Hashtag Black. And I was telling them about the book. <clears throat> and I was like, can you not just read it? And then they read it. And they're like, oh, my God, it's so good. So we were going back and forth with what to do. We were like, do you know what? We really like it. It would be stupid to not sign it just because, you know, we said two black British authors, you know, we'll, we, we'll find another black British author. So we signed a tier and then... I think like the last day of our um of our submissions we then found Annabelle um so we kind of rejigged it so that the two black British authors are coming out first and then the tier will be the last one to come out um right yeah so we had to kind of do that so that you know arts council don't get all pissy with us and stuff but yeah <laughs> I just really liked the book and I was like I don't really want to let it go for like a technicality almost <laughs> do you know what I mean Oh, I I love that tenacity. Um, so, um, Atia, do you want to tell us about Ten Steps to You? I mean, I feel I know this book so well because I've watched it growing oh, um, over the years. <laughs> ten Steps to yeah. Us, sorry, because I, of course, I know it as Cigarettes and Scars, yeah. which is how it started yeah. out. Yes, Ten Steps to Us. So, um, yeah, as you know, Sophia, it started off in like the writers' workshop, um, just as an idea um, based on some bullying at a bus stop and um and and just grew over years this uh the character of Aisha and her sort of having this uh, attraction to a non-Muslim and feeling really angst-ridden and torn about what to do about it and sort of being torn between two cultures and just trying to the 10 steps was kind of her solution to to uh to to dealing with the you know problems of liking someone who's outside of her culture and her religion um so she grows up in a really observant muslim culture doesn't she yeah so she's quite observant and she takes the religion quite seriously but she she lives in kent and it's not very diverse um and so when she finds this guy who's who's quite sympathetic and understanding she's like really confused about what to do because he's not muslim so the 10 steps is her way of trying to um, find a solution. It's quite a teenage solution <laughs> to like how to how to uh, keep the guy and keep her faith. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't quite go to plan. 
as life doesn't quite go to plan. Um, what, what I always really loved about it is the fact that it is, it's just, oh, sorry, that's my um, my phone saying pre-published recording. <laughs> I don't know why it's telling me that now. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, yeah, I'm doing it, phone. Um <laughs> So yeah, what I what I always really loved about this story is it it's it's kind of it's classic teenage angst. It's worrying about boys. It's worrying about emerging sexuality and um, and and it's combining that with with feelings about um, about her her religion and should she or shouldn't she wear the hijab and um, it it just I felt that it was a story that that's so many uh, teenagers would identify with and others who who wouldn't would be just really really interested to to learn about how how a girl like that might be feeling um and I wasn't seeing those books on the shelves at all really um so I'm really glad that I'm going to at last yeah I mean I think it's quite a common problem when um but it's still even now when I tell some Muslim people about this sort of storyline they look a little bit shocked and it's like, well, it happens all the time, you know, like, you yeah. know, we live in a multicultural society and you can't just fancy, you don't just fancy people of the same religion, you know, like, <laughs> and it's just kind of, um, they look a little bit shocked sometimes. Um, so, but I think it's, it's just what I've observed. I mean, I work in East London and, um, you know, I, I know I know what goes on in so you know it's nothing I I think it's just something that's actually of relevance because um I just yeah. didn't want another terrorist Muslim <laughs> 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 yes um I mean I think I I know that it's not particularly autobiographical yeah. um but I I'm sure people will be interested to, to know how how you come to it particularly kind of in the in the own voices debate so so do you mind sort of sharing a bit about what your family background is um yeah so I mean I I uh so I mean the initial incident that happened at the bus stop did actually happen to me but um it, unfortunately it wasn't a really attractive guy that saved me it was my sister <laughs> so, yeah. so, so <laughs> my sister's a bit tough a bit more tougher than me and she she dealt with the bullies but um so uh i i our family were quite well i don't think they were strict they were sort of moderate muslims um which i still consider myself a moderate muslim um mm. so the character that i've created is a little bit more observant than her family um, and that's something that I've observed myself from working where I work, that I find that the younger generation are perhaps a little bit stricter than we were, um, which I find quite interesting. Uh, they seem to, I don't, I'm not sure why that is, but they seem to be a little bit stricter and more people seem to wear the hijab than they used to in the, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and they seem to be like, I don't know, when we were growing up, we might have done one or two fasts, but now yeah. everybody does all of them. And, you know, there's um, it, the sort of culture's kind of shifted a little bit, which is interesting. Um, but 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 there's still always that thing where, you know, people are doing all this stuff, but then they're doing all the other stuff, too, <laughs> like dating and getting into relationships and then not knowing what to do once they're in those relationships and how to how to manage it all and you know I have patients ringing me and telling me about all this stuff because there's no one else that they could talk to about it do, do you know like I you know they'll they'll, talk, they'll call me and say oh I had to break up with my boyfriend but I can't tell anyone and I'm really depressed and I thought you might understand. So you, you work in a yeah. You work in a GP practice, don't yeah, you? So yeah. is that is that how you encounter yeah, people? Golly, yeah. yeah I yeah, mean, I work in East London. It, it, there is a large Muslim population where I work, um, mm. so I hear lots of lots of different stories. Um, and uh, you know, I think you know Muslim people just have the same challenges as everybody else. You know, when it comes to relationships mm. and things like that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I can't wait for it to come out. Abiola, what I really love about your career from what I've seen is that as well as being a writer yourself, um, you saw a gap in the publishing market and and you just took the risk to create something to fill it. And we've heard a little bit about, you know, how risky that can feel and looking for funding. And um, it must it must feel like quite a 
burden at, at times. Um, but I'd love to know. So what made you want to, to set hashtag press up and hashtag black? And, and what do you want them to do? Oh, yeah. So, um, well, basically, um, me and Helen, we have a business called The Author School, which is like a writing community um, business. And we always run like two full days in London where we teach authors like how to get from manuscript publication. Um, mm. And obviously we couldn't really do that. Uh, last year but that's like our thing that we were doing and um in a 20 oh, I don't know maybe 2016 an author called Stephanie Nimmo came to the author school and it was during the break she came up to me she said oh, she's got this book that she's written and she's like quite a popular blogger and she was like, I've got this book and I really want to publish it to the dirt so we were like oh okay let's have a chat a bit more later so after the day had ended she was talking to me and Helen and she was like you know I really like you too could you publish my book and we're like we don't, we don't have a publishing house <laughs> okay. and she was like oh like you know would you consider making one and a light bulb went off in my head I was like hold on a second why don't we make one <laughs> and Helen was fully like we're not making a publishing house that's so stupid so you know I was like let's give Helen a bit of time to figure out <laughs> what's wrong with her and so I said let's just like do some research let's figure it out I've self-published before like years ago so I was like I kind of feel like I get the process um, yeah. but it was just things like, you know, what printers do you use and how do you get a sales team and just those bits that obviously I wouldn't know about. So I remember we spent about a year, um, we went to London Book Fair, we spoke to loads of people and we just gathered lots of information. And then, yeah, then we signed Steph and then we published her book, which is What's in the Plan. And um, yeah, and it went to, it was in the top 10 bestsellers list. And we were just like, oh, <laughs> we got it, which was... <laughs> Okay. Very funny. So we were seeing a lot. There was a lot of talk, obviously, about diversity, inclusivity. And me and Helen are always very, you know, open about our thoughts on it. And obviously, we're a team of, like, one black girl, one white girl, one from London, one from Leeds. So obviously, we're very different. Um, And we noticed that with our books, Hashtag Press, a lot of the books that we seem drawn to are always about diversity or inclusivity, which wasn't on purpose, just seemed like the books that seemed to take our interest. Mm. And so I was saying to her, like, you know, it'd be, I think it'd be really good if we did like an imprint, just very specific to publishing under, underrepresented writers only. And we want to start with Black British. So the next thing we were like, okay, was um, where's the money to do this? And so then we spoke to Arts Council and we told them what we wanted to do. And they were like, yeah, if you apply, we would fund you. And we were like, okay. So we applied and we got funding for it. And that's how hashtag um, Black started. And I guess the goal really is to like we're very passionate about debut authors and those that come from a diverse inclusive background that have a story to tell and it's not just inclusivity in, in terms of like disability or stuff like that it's also like you know we have two books that aim for over 40 like things like that we're like really passionate about um oh, that's lovely yeah we just we just want to um showcase brand new talent um but we are super tiny and I think we've done pretty well for a very tiny publishing house. So, yeah. <laughs> so have, yeah. I'm quite proud of us and our very random ambition to be publishers. <laughs> so, basically, Stephanie Nimmo is the reason why we made hashtag, to be honest. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Good Thank thinker. you, Stephanie. <laughs> I was reading uh, an article that Atia was featured in recently um, in Bad mm-hmm. Form Review. Is that right, Atia? Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed it. And um, and it mentioned that there was a recent academic study from Goldsmiths um, in partnership with Spread the Word and the Bookseller and, and various other organisations about diversity in publishing and kind of acknowledging finally that, you know, publishers are trying to do the right thing and find writers of colour, mm-hmm. for example, but they are really challenged by it. Um, I think that's pretty clear. And mm. My, well, what do I know? But but my theory is is that the best way to do it is is to find entrepreneurial people exactly like you, Abiola, who are just prepared to just just do it, just make it happen. Um, it, it's not going to come from internships at the bottom of really established publishing houses. It's going to come from people yeah. going, I, I have my own taste. I know what I like. I think other people will agree with me. Let's get it out there. Yeah, a lot of people just don't think like that, though. I think publishers especially overcomplicate everything a lot. Yeah. And they 
they make a lot of excuses. I do agree. I definitely think there's been an improvement. I think especially like at the height of Black Lives Matter, people were shamed into like having to do better. But I do also think that they make a lot of excuses and um they just it's it's just not that hard like <laughs> yeah, I agree. it's hard it's hard in general finding a book that you like like regardless of who wrote it but there are there is a lot of talent out there and if you just and that especially if you're a massive publishing house of a huge following and you just say hey we're looking for this you don't have to do any work like they're gonna come to you do you know what i mean and i think a lot of um a lot of agents and publishers just don't want to do the work that it requires. Like a lot of people from an ethnic background, you know, we don't talk about things like publishing. Like what is publishing in our culture? Do you know what I mean? Like that's not a word we understand. Like my mum would never say to me, hey, you should be an author. <laughs> yeah. like, that's not a realistic thing to say. So, you know, we might have a desire to write something. We might not necessarily understand how to go from A to B. And that's where we really need the help. And I find that, a lot of people just don't want to do that work. They just kind of want you to come pretty fully formed. Yeah. And that's just not realistic. So they just need to just do better. And I, I absolutely hate with my whole soul when big publishing houses make like these little side things and they're like, oh, this is just for diversity. And they make like a little mm. side thing and they put like a black girl in charge of it. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Like no one's telling you to make like a separate thing per se. Like, just just whatever you've done for the white author, you can just do for <laughs> yeah, the black exactly. Asian author. Like, yeah. it's not it's not that hard. It's not niche. Like, like, the only reason we separated hashtag press, hashtag black, was because initially hashtag press was a hybrid publishing house, and we wanted to make hashtag black a traditional. Mm-hmm. Only now hashtag press is traditional. That's so, the only reason why we separated it. So when you say hybrid, is that to do with self-publishing? Or no, hybrid, so hybrid in what is way? basically, like, in between. So it's, like, a collaborative publishing. So it's when the publisher and the author invests and okay. basically creates the book together and they're right. 50-50. Yeah. And we've done that because, you know, we had no mindset of the publishing house. So that's the only reason why we made Hashtag Black separate was because we were like, we want this to be solely traditional, mm-hmm. but we have no money. How are we going to do this? And that's how we got the funding from Arts Council to make that happen. Got but you. only now we've made Hashtag Press traditional. But if that wasn't the case, if the Hashtag Press was traditional from the get-go, we wouldn't have separated it. It just would have been what it is. I don't really get always the weird little imprints they make in big publishing houses. And they're like, oh, this is just solely for this type of writing. And this is for, and it's basically just like black people. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It's like you separate it by genre if you want to separate it. Yeah. Not by colour. Well, if you go by by Atia's book, I mean, as I say, I think it will be read by teenagers who are interested in being a teenager, regardless of what Mm -hmm. colour they are or gender they are or any of those things. It's just, it's a really interesting aspect of teenage life. Exactly. I think people just, that's what I mean, I think people just overthink it and they just make excuses. And publishing is, everyone says publishing is so slow. And I'm like, it is, but it isn't. Like, publishing can move fast when it wants to. I think people choose to move slow because they don't really want to do it. Right. That's what I personally do. (laughs) I wonder whether there's a bit of groupthink, whether they're, you know, if you you catch people as individuals, they might go, yeah, no, I really want to do it. But once you get a lot of them in a room together, it becomes increasingly hard. But I think they do do a lot of this token stuff where they do like um, an initiative and it's just like a tick box exercise Mm. that I think that they have to do to to show Mm -hmm. that they did some diversity things. So they might, I don't know, do an underrepresented day or something like that but they wouldn't sign they wouldn't internship yeah but they wouldn't sign your actual book or anything do you know what i mean like they would just yeah yeah i think they have are obliged to do that um that's how it feels well that's that's what i have increasingly seen at definitely is you know because i've worked with so many students of color um over the years and 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 i'm increasingly seeing that they are involved with programs to mentor them but very rarely uh, it's happening it's happening more no one yeah exactly does it result in an actual book yeah. on the shelf which is what i want but to then see. it depends what they want i guess these might be people that do want to actually just work in publishing they don't want to write a book yeah. you know like when i was younger i wanted to just do um any work experience just to really understand publishing more i just couldn't get work experience but that was what i wanted but i obviously want to be an author but i wasn't going there to be an author i just wanted to learn so it might be that, but I do think that, you know, like, I mean, these publishing houses, these like big ones have so much money. I'm just like, you could be doing more, like doing an internship for 
someone that's from like an ethnic background is something that I could do with my tiny little publishing house. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You lot could do more because you have more money and more staff and more whatever. So again, I just think people just kind of just tick their box. They don't really want to do it. It's probably led by like one person who actually cares. And that's why it moves so slow. But also they don't get stuff as well. Like, um, so when I, when I submitted my book, I felt like Abiola just got it, understood it straight away. Um, I don't know. She uh, she mentioned that her dad is also Muslim and stuff like that. But um, but mm. some agents that I've submitted to, I remember this one giving me really nasty feedback saying this isn't realistic or something. It's like something that had actually happened in real life and. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hate when they say it's not yeah. realistic, and it's like you, just because you haven't experienced it before yeah. doesn't mean like we've had a lot of that with hijab and red lipstick. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like right. you said, yeah. we've had people being like, "This just isn't realistic." I'm like, "Excuse that me, that's really disrespectful to tell <laughs> someone that what you've experienced or your friends experienced because I don't understand it. It just doesn't make sense how her dad can be like that." I'm like, "Well, is there are dads who bloody lock their kids in the house and chain yeah. them to beds. Like, they're yeah. very." random people in yeah. the world just because it's not your experience doesn't mean it's not true so i get really irritated when people say that funny enough what one of the other books in in our um in our group was exactly about a dad who locked his daughter up and uh, um so i've come across that one as well yeah um Honestly, absolutely it's just re- it's just stupid and again it's because they a lot of um you know agents and publishers you know they're like middle class white people who you know, have experienced whatever they've... Ex- I mean, I can't understand what they've experienced either because I've not experienced it before. But, you know, they have their own different culture to us. So when we say things like, you know, let's say, I know, I can write a story and maybe the mum is quite tough and, I don't know, throws stuff at her kid or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> and someone can read that and be like, oh my God, that's just so abusive whatever and I'm just like no it's just an African mother like it's not we don't look at it in that way like that's just that's the way our culture is and I get that for you you'd be like oh my god we need to call social services but for us it's not that deep do you know what I mean so I think it's respecting do you mean just respect other people's cultures yes I do know exactly what you mean yeah there was what there was one section where a child said um or um, that he thought halal meat was disgusting, yeah. And um, I remember this person who was giving me feedback saying children don't speak like that. And it's like, well, and and it was like, well, <laughs> that's what someone told my son last week. So children do speak like oh that, goodness. yeah. Exactly. So, so you know, you don't know. And she goes, I don't think it's nice to paint children in that light. And it's like, well, that's, that's the reality. Yeah. That's the other thing that's happening with publishing that's really irritating me. It's this weird, very, like, censorship thing going on where I feel like everyone almost is walking on tiptoes and they don't want to offend anybody. And if you've written a book and you have a character that has a disability or injury, they're like, oh, my God, if you haven't got this disability or injury, you cannot talk about it. And it's like, what are you talking about? Of course I can bloody talk about it. Like, how do you know I don't know someone that's got this? Like, how do you know this information? And I think it's this whole thing of, like, if you're saying things that you haven't particularly experienced yourself, you can't write about it. And it's like, I'm an author. I can write whatever I want to write. Like, that is ridiculous to tell someone you can only write about what you've experienced. That I think make yeah, any sense. it would shut us down. But I do think that these days we have an obligation as writers to to double check if it is somebody's lived experience. Um, yeah, to double check. Of course you should. But yeah. you can't tell someone like, oh, my God, you've never been in a wheelchair. You can't write someone with this. Like, how do you know my sister's not in a wheelchair? Yeah. How do you know I've lived someone in a wheelchair my entire life? Like, don't tell me what I can and can't write if you don't know what I've experienced or lived through. True enough. It doesn't make any sense. But on the, on the other hand, I mean, one of my main characters in, in my series now is a Nigerian Londoner. And and I feel perfectly entitled to to write about a Nigerian Londoner because I'm a Londoner myself and, and I know Nigerian Londoners. But but I really also feel a massive obligation to make sure that I reflect her experience as, as accurately as I can because I would hate for, for my, my friends to read it and go... She says that's a Nigerian Londoner, but I just it doesn't reflect what I know at all. I mean, that that would just yeah, I think of course, be but it's different down. because I don't know how you've grown up. You might have grown up around Nigerian culture, so you might know Nigerian culture just as well as I know Nigerian culture. Like, I have no idea. Do you know what I'm saying? But it'd be different if like you have you don't know anyone Nigerian. You're just kind of finding this out by the internet. Do you know what I'm trying to say? 
Yeah, I mean, so I think the the people who can can judge are the people who do have that lived experience, and if it resonates with them, great. And and if it doesn't, then um, then I think they're entitled. Well, if it to doesn't, that's better. also like one person it might not resonate with. It doesn't mean that it's not accurate. It's like you could write about yeah, Nigerian character too. eating plantain, and there'll be a whole group of Nigerians be like, "Oh my god, we don't just eat plantain. <laughs> I don't even like plantain." And it's like I don't know. I'm Nigerian. I don't know one person in my family who doesn't like plantain. So you're obviously from a different is, type of Nigerian than we know, are from. But that it's is like, it such a good point. Right or wrong? Do you know yeah. What I mean? Plantain. I, so, it's interesting I don't because know, it just like yeah. annoys me a bit. Yeah, I, mean, I I feel really sensitive about putting it in because sure enough, actually, the people I've talked about it with say, that's what we eat, that's what we love. And I think, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm just putting it in as a, as a sort of a white person guessing. No, but it's, it's like, no, it's a true thing. Um, yes. There'll it, be those really like, you know, hoity-toity ones. I'll be like, oh my God, we're more than that. And it's like, we're not. <laughs> we're not more than that. Don't pretend. We like our plantains. Like, don't be so stupid about it. Do you know what I mean? We like our rice and we like our chicken and we like our plantain and that's fine. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, they're all in the book. So, um, moving on, I'm I'm interested to know. Um, hopefully, um, you know, children growing up now will grow up in a world with more diverse literature available to them. Um, but what books and films and TV inspired you both when you were growing up? Um, so, in terms of TV, um. The, the thing that came to my mind is this really sort of niche program that was really late at night. It was called um, Shalom, Shalom, Salam. I don't think anybody right. else watched it. <laughs> Sorry, just me. But it was about that this. Um, it was this Muslim girl that that is um, has a relationship with uh, this Jewish guy. That's where the Shalom, Salam thing came in. And I'd never seen anything like that before on 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 TV um, with a, like a Muslim character in it. Um, but I think it was really, really late at night because um, it was quite a niche thing. Um, but I used to watch a lot of like um, Bollywood films. They used to come on, on BBC TV with with yeah. subtitles on. I think that's kind of how I learned um, Urdu and stuff by, by watching those movies. Um, and they really got me into... Um, you know, Asian ideas about romance and stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> so I think that's where I get a lot of my romantic, romantic sort of ideas about. But um, and then I used to really like the classics in terms of books. You know, like Pride and Prejudice and uh, Thomas Hardy and all that stuff because I find them quite similar to Asian culture. You know, like you know having to where Tessa Devils had to hide her previous relationships and um you know, where the Pride and Prejudice were the mums desperate to get them all married off and stuff like that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. So, um, yeah. And then later on, I, you know, discovered like Hanif Qureshi and um, Elif Shafak and all that in books. And I just, yeah, they're, but they were so few and hard to come by in those days. So, um, so those are the things that sort of stand out for me. But I'm kind of, kind of hoping there's a lot more there's a lot more diversity now, I think. Um, well, I'm hoping, anyway. Um, you know, it's just, yeah. But those are the things that I remember from, from those days, especially that late-night programme, <laughs> which I was the only one watching, I think. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. Yeah, those could be the most important ones sometimes. And, and Aviola, how about you? I grew up on, like, a lot of 90s shows. So, like, Moesha, Sister Sister... Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Lizzie McGuire, like yeah. those are like the things I like grew up watching a lot. So I grew up like I guess watching a lot of diversity and especially there's loads of black um comedic programmes on TV. Like there was so much when I was like a child into a teenager. Um but there was also like my brother, um, when he went to secondary school, he became friends with these Japanese twins and they got him into anime. And oh, so awesome. we would watch a lot of anime and there was a series that my brother like forced me and my sister to watch all the time called Dragon Ball Z, which I got really into. And that's kind of like where my Emily Knight character came from. But we also like, as a family, like my, well, not necessarily, but my family loves sports. I love sports a lot. So they would watch every sport going. But I got really into wrestling. Oh, yes, wrestling. Watch, like, yeah, we all used to watch that. All the wrestling and like, um, <laughs> okay. especially during like, in 
WWE, the Attitude yeah. Era, that was in like the 90s and stuff, like The exactly. Rock and whatever. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> we got really into that and like Pokemon and all that sort of stuff. So, and like then I used to read a lot of comic books. I read a lot of like the X Men comic books, Spider Man. So I got really into like Marvel and stuff like that before, you know, Marvel became what it is now. So those are the things I really watch, which kind of ex- I think explains why I always like love writing fantasy. Um, and I always like having like, you know, dull characters that are super like, you know, bossed up and, you know, kick everyone's butt kind of thing. Yeah. I think just based yeah. on what I've always <laughs> watched. Um, but in terms of books, I mean, I was obsessed with Judy Bloom. I would read anything oh, okay. Judy Bloom. I just, um, the day I met her, I literally thought I was going to die. I was like, so, <laughs> I was so excited. I what just felt her books were so... Because she writes... Obviously, her books are kind of like... They're like middle-grade YA. But I think the age I read them at, which was like around 12, was like the perfect age because her characters would be going through things that I would be thinking about. And then they'd be going things that I hadn't even thought about yet. And I was kind of like, oh, okay. This is what happens when you get older kind of thing. <laughs> I loved her and like Jacqueline Wilson. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, and, and The Babysitter's Club. I used to devour The Babysitter's Club. I think I've read all of the books, and there's like 200, I'm sure. And um, when I was in primary school, I used to rewrite them with my friends in it and make my own version oh, of The Babysitter's Club. So that yeah. was my first ever book series I ever wrote was my version of The Babysitter's Club. So those are like the books. A lot of, a lot of my writer friends were, were into that series as well. I, I never sort of encountered it. I was a Nancy Drew girl. But oh, I um, yeah, Drew. I think it's inspired a lot of writers. It's just, I think because Baby's Club, again, it's like, it's pretty diverse as well. Um, I mean, it's not that diverse, but like, you know what I mean? But it's like, it's, it was more diverse than like a Jacqueline Wilson book, for example. Um, but I never really thought about the fact that I read books and there weren't like lots of black people. I didn't, it didn't really yeah. dawn on me, if I'm honest. Like, I remember reading Noughts and Crosses and kind of being like, oh, oh, this is interesting. But, and then, then I kind of realised, yeah. I don't really have a lot of books with like, black people in it, but it didn't, I don't feel like it bothered me because I think I could find myself in a lot of characters in books. Um, and it's yeah. only really when I got to university and one of my lecturers, who was an editor from New York, and she was really pro-diversity before anyone was really talking about diversity. And she was, she would talk to us a lot about diverse books and how we need to be doing more. And she would tell me, like, you know, you need to do this, this, this. And that's when I really got into diversity. But prior to that, I don't feel like I felt super, like, not represented, almost. And I, me- I remember actually Harry Potter, everyone in, like, second school thought that Hermione was black because they oh, described really? in yeah. one of the books as having, like, bushy hair. Everyone was like, oh, yeah, does yeah. she have, like, an afro? And then it was only until uh, the third book cover, when she's on it, on that, you know, that bird thing. And then we saw it, we were like, oh, she's white. I remember we all be like, oh, she's white. <laughs> we were very disappointed. But, you know, this was enjoying Harry Potter. So, yeah, I think diversity affected me a bit differently than a lot of, like, other black people I've heard talk about it. They seem to have been quite affected and not seeing themselves. But I don't feel like I was affected. So, I mean, I was going to ask you kind of what, what's inspired you to, to do what you do, but but I, I sense that perhaps there's a bit of Babysitter's Club in there, um, Abiola. Um, was that was that one of the things behind you deciding that you wanted to be a writer? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> okay. I used to write just for fun. It was never, like, again, like I told you, like, you know, it, being an author is not something my family would ever say yeah. to me. My mum had three kids and she was very clear what all her kids were going to be and I was either going to be a lawyer or a tennis player oh and I'm not I'm really good at sports I'm not that great at tennis but she was like we're going to send you tennis camp and you're going to be fantastic she's insane but she loves tennis so she was like you're going to be a tennis player because I really need someone to be a tennis player in the family so I had that in my head that's what I was going to do even though I wasn't that good at tennis and then I got to secondary school and I was in like year seven and you know they give you all those like English creative writing exercises and then one time I did one and my teacher said to me um you should be an author and I was like really is that like a job and she was like yeah she's like you know all these books I, I would always come into class with like books and she was like all these books you read people get paid to do it and I was like what and I just thought that was just so I've never heard of that in my life and I remember going to the library at lunch and googling an author because I never even, like, realised that people got... Pe- I don't know where I thought books came from, if I'm totally honest with you. I just yeah. know I had them. So I remember going home and telling my mum, and she was furious. She was like, who is telling you 
to be an author. <laughs> and she went to school. She's like, why are you not telling her this stuff? She was so pissed off. And then ever since then, so since I was like 11, 12, I was like, I'm going to be an author. But you've also been a dancer, haven't you? Yeah, I used to be a professional dancer. I stopped when I was like 26, <laughs> I think. So you just threw that one in there. Yeah. I mean, you've danced in some amazing places, haven't you? I mean, like a proper, proper dancer. Yeah, it was fun. But again, that was just for fun. I never wanted to be a dancer. I just, it, I just thought it was just fun. It was just fun and I got to do cool things, but it was just like, I just had a good time. And then I was like, I'll stop when it's not fun anymore. And then one day that like, wasn't fun anymore. I was like, okay, I'm just going to stop doing this now. Okay, and that, so author was always the, the big the big goal, was it? Sort of after the age of 11, after you had that, that moment with your teacher. Yeah, it was like, I'm going to awesome. somehow be an author. But then as I got older and I would like keep writing, I'd read all the time. I mean, I still would do it, but I used to read all the time, like just devour books. And um, I just remember just as I got older, just being like, how do I become, how do I do this? I don't know anything about publishing I don't know anyone who's a writer it wasn't like dance where once you kind of met one dancer you were then introduced to like this massive dance community there's like this whole dance world that people don't even know about and like there's all like these secret spots in London where you like dancers train and stuff it's like crazy and but it's like as soon as you kind of yeah it's like like, in Southbank there's like this whole dance floor that people go to train like in Southbank and a lot of people don't even know that and yeah it's, it's so funny and in Trocadero, when it used to exist, people would go there to trade and it was like a dance spot. Um, so once that was different, because it was like kind of once I knew someone and then was like in a crew, I suddenly was part of this world. Then like I all I knew was dancers, really. And then so me trying to figure out, you know, how to get into publishing, I was like, how do I? I don't even know how to do this. And I think when I, I don't even know how I even, oh, that was how. I went to, I went to uni and I did creative writing um, but I didn't like the university. But in my second year is where I met this editor called Laura Atkins, who was the diverse editor. And she was really the one who kind of cemented and showed me how to do this whole process and stuff. So yeah, so a lot of it was just guessing what to do. But I somehow would always find these women who were in publishing who would help me at just the right time with exactly what I needed. It was very weird now looking back at it. So, yeah, so that's how I kind of learned about how to get into this industry. Because I kept trying to get, like, work experience with, like, Random House. And they, like, would never pick me. (laughs) (laughs) Ever. And I called them one time. I was like, you never pick me. They're like, oh, my God, I will pick you. And I didn't even know what marketing was. I didn't know what editorial was. I didn't know that you had to apply into what department. And I was like, I don't even know what these, I don't know what the hell rights even means. I don't know what none of this stuff is. So I was supplied to whatever. I was like, I just want to see if this, like, I didn't know if I wanted to work in a publishing house or if I just wanted to write books. Like, I just wasn't sure. I just knew I wanted to do bookish stuff. And I guess I just thought, if I want to write a book, maybe I should work in a publishing house. I could learn more. But, like, no one gave me work experience, so that just didn't happen. So you just kind of made it happen in the end? Yeah, I just kind of just, like, met really cool. I remember, like, um, I used to train dance at this um youth club called St Mary's on Upper Street Angel and um when I started teaching dance there the guy who ran the youth club he knew somehow he was doing this mentoring program and he introduced this woman called Frances who worked for Oxford University Press and I met up with her and I was like this is when I decided just to self-publish a book because I couldn't get an agent so I was gonna do it myself and then um I was talking to her and I was telling her all the stuff I'd done and she was like oh my god you don't need my help and I was like no I'm like seriously blagging it I don't actually know what I'm doing and I said I feel very <laughs> lost and I'd like now I decide I'm going to self-publish this book I said but I don't know if I'm like do I just is it just this version that gets sent off and she's like no you need to get someone to proofread it and I was like well how do I do that and she that's what was her job I was super she was a proofreader she's like, she's like I'll proofread your book for you free and I was like oh my god thank you so yeah so she was really cool um, and uh, Asia, how did how did you get into writing? Yes, yeah, so because um, it's pretty different from the NHS. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. I so as Abiola was saying, we we always have these traditional things that our parents want us to do. So in Asians, it's always either doctor, dentist, pharmacist, accountant, or that kind of thing. <laughs> so it's like because um, I I've, I've always wanted to write since I was a child. I remember winning like this um, short story thing when I was at school and the teachers would say you should do English and 
I remember trying to tell my dad that I wanted to do an English degree and he was like, why on earth would you do that? It was a complete waste of time and stuff, you know. So there was kind of an expectation that I should do medicine, um, which I actually really enjoy. So, and then because my mum's like, see, I told you, you did the right thing. And I do really love my day job. But it's always been at the back of my mind that I wanted to write a book. It's just been like a childhood kind of almost fantasy almost so it's so really exciting that it's actually finally happening and then I think yeah I think the job is quite stressful having a load of kids is quite stressful so the writing is kind of like an escape it's like sort of therapy <laughs> it's just like you know yeah. and it's quite um it's actually quite sociable because that's how I met uh, you and I met all those other guys that we do the critique group with so it's really fun as well. It's just something really different. Um, so for me, it's like a, it's just an escape from the stress of life. Was like, is to write. Um, but yeah, it was. It's it is kind of like a dream. And I, I and and yeah, because you you've been because people sort of in our culture say, oh, creative things are like a. A waste of time and mm. why aren't you studying and <laughs> why aren't you applying for this you know it's so it's it's not really encouraged as such so um so I'm hoping that but now I've now I feel like I actually once by finishing the book and everything it was just it was just so took me out of my comfort zone it was something so different to the day job it's just it's it's very I, I I do enjoy it. It's really hard though. I think writing is a lot harder than I could probably do a whole week of locums and it would be a lot easier. <laughs> I could do writing like a whole really vac vaccinating yeah. shift and it still would be less hard than than writing. Yeah. It is hard, but it's it's writing's hard. Yeah, but it's fun. Yeah, but. There's a lovely quote. I, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, um, "Writers are people who find writing more difficult than other people," <laughs> which <laughs> I definitely it. agree with. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. I think we've come to the end of our time, sadly. But um, I always ask people if they have any tips for pre-published writers and even pre-publisher publishers these days. So, um, Abiola, do you have anything that you would like to recommend to people? Um, I would just say, you know. I, I write a lot for like more middle grade YA so I would say like really read the genre that you want to write in and like the age group um that's just the best way to understand language and what you can and can't do like it's quite easy to kind of figure out what what you can and can't do and I would also say if you feel like you need more like assistance or more like one-on-one -on -one, check out the author school little plug there but um, absolutely I would also say like if you're someone who's looking for an agent um someone who's on their third agent which is just ridiculous at this point but um, I would definitely say make sure you're really clear in terms of what type of agent you want because I think when I was like again you know I'm just I was learning as I was going I was just always told you need an agent so when I got offered a, a, a representation I took it um, and I was like, yeah, of course, kind of thing. I thought, finally, I've got an agent. But, you know, I was, as 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 I grew up and kind of understood the industry more, I kind of recognised myself what kind of agent I wanted to actually have and who was the best one for me. And, you know, now I have that. Um, so I feel like people just need to be quite clear. Like, don't just take an agent because you're like, oh, I need an agent. Like, really sit down and think about it because they work for you and you need to make sure that the way they work works well with you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think there's still a mindset authors are just like, they don't care. They just want an agent. And as someone who's done that, I just think that's not, that's not the best way to do it. So I would yeah, just say, I do agree. It, know, it, yeah. It's, it's going to be a close partnership if it works well. And so, oh, yes, you want to and everyone has like the same for you. Different, um, just different energy. And like, yeah. so like my agent, I find her energy is quite similar to me. So, you know, and I'm not, I don't think I'm hard to work with at all. <laughs> I don't, I hope I'm not hard to work with. <laughs> but I think I'm very much someone that I know what I like and I'm quite clear about what I like and what I kind of feel like I know what works well for me and she's just like a perfect fit. Um, but she might be a perfect fit for someone else. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's just like, I feel like in this industry, the more you know what you want, 
the easier it is to manage than when you're kind of just jumping on everything because you think you have to. And it's like, I don't think that's the best thing to do. Thank you for that. And um, Atia, what do you? What would you say yeah, so to uh, pre-published writers? Actually, before this evening, I didn't realise that the hashtag Black was ex- was initially just meant to be for Black writers. Because um, when my friend gave me the link, um, I was just like, no, I did ask her. I said, is it just for Black writers? And she said, oh, I think it just means Black in the general sense. Yeah. So. Oh. I was like, <laughs> So I was just like, okay, I'll go for it then. So, um, uh, so it's so what I'm saying is, you should just go for stuff, you know. A hundred percent. Yeah, we you yeah. never submitted. Yeah. We would never have had your book. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, I love your book. And we're actually getting. Well, I'm actually going to see the first draft of the cover tomorrow. Oh, that's exciting! I know. I'm actually really excited. And also, yeah. my friend was the model for it. Oh wow! So yeah, that's I like lovely. even yeah. more like, oh god, I hope. <laughs> the right person to be the face of this book so yeah so I'm so glad that you know you just went for it anyway and sometimes I think that's another thing with like you know with um publishing is know what you want but also like what Atiyah did like take risks as well like if you don't try you don't you don't get like the way I got my new agent was because I saw a tweet about you know doing Black Lives Matter she said does anyone want feedback as a black author I'd just been offered a deal for one of my books and I was like you know what let me just get some feedback why not she's a good she's a good agent and I never thought it would be like you know four days later she'd call me and be like I want to represent you I didn't think that was going to happen at all do you yeah. know what I mean but it's like just yeah. just, just, just go for things. it just yeah try. just just try isn't it yeah 100% yeah, the, the the more you put stuff out there, the, the more likely it is that one day it'll connect with somebody. Absolutely. I guess. Yeah. Oh, thank you both so much. It's been a wonderful conversation, and um, I hope listeners will find it useful. Um, and the tech somehow survived all sorts of exciting <laughs> things going on. God Almighty. Um, but yeah, I'm really grateful. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Pre-Pub Podcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com.